Um, so my name is Murray Hebert. I work on Southeast Asia here at CSIS. It's a delight to have all you here. We're going to talk about uh, the importance of Asia's economy to the United States, including about the uh, uh, Asia Economic Strategy Commission that the, U, uh, that the CSIS has, has formed to start thinking about the importance of Asia for the next administration. Um, my colleague to the right is uh, Scott Miller, who's the Sh Shoal Chair in International Business here at CSIS, which focuses a lot on uh, obviously on international business, but focuses a lot on, on Asia. In a minute, we'll have Ernie, and I'll introduce him when he comes. But what we were thinking of doing is starting with uh, uh, Scott talking just a little bit uh, about the importance of, of Asia to America before we start uh, talking about strategies and uh, various uh, economic policies that would be good for the U.S. to adopt uh, moving forward. Uh, so, Scott, over to you. Thank you, Murray, and uh, thanks, thanks all of you for your patience. Uh, it's, it's my goal at CSAS to start meetings on time and end them early. Uh, we will apologize for the late start. We will end on time. So uh, we'll have that to look forward to it. In any case, there's a, I know we're I'm facing a room full of Asia experts, so uh, being, having a, uh, a, uh, uh, an opportunity to talk about Asia is, is, is great because I look forward to your questions. But let me start with a very uh, uh, quick landscape assessment of, of kind of what's going on in Asia, and more importantly, why we're interested in it, why we're thinking about it, and, uh, and how it, uh, uh, the, the future uh, might uh, affect uh, U.S. economics and U.S. policy. If I could start uh, the uh, presentation. There are many reasons to focus on Asia, but I think the first slide when we bring it up here uh, is probably the simplest. Oops. There we go. Uh, I, can, I can run that. I'd prefer to run it. Thank you. <laughs> That's great. Now you're in real trouble. I have the controls. <laughs> That's, there are a lot of reasons to focus on Asia. This is the simplest. Within that circle are more than half the people on planet Earth. So Asia is that populous, that important. And keep in mind that at least for the last generation, Asia has been the, the home in general terms of very steady, uh, fast economic growth and relative stability, uh, political stability. This has made it a, a very important area for the U.S. commercially, but it's also been very, uh, it, it's been a very good period for the people of Asia. Uh, during this time period, roughly the last 30 years, uh, more people have been lifted out of poverty than any time in human history in this area within that circle. So that's why it's important and will continue to be important. The, the question that our, that our research now is focused on is what happens in the next generation? Where, where do we go from here? There is a notion uh, that Asia is young, the perception that Asia is a young continent, it's a young area from an economic terms. That is generally true compared to the U.S. and Europe, but I also want to point out that there are some places in Asia that are the oldest in the world. Japan, for instance, these are, by the way, these are, these are demographic uh, charts. They're, they're quite familiar to demographers. Starting at the bottom, going to the top, are age cohorts in decades, so the bottom row on each of these graphs is the number of people who are ages 0 through 10, uh, and it goes on and on up the chart. Uh, the, the bars, width of the bar shows the general uh, proportion of the population in that space. Uh, the blue side of the bar is uh, are men. The, the red side of the bar are women. So as you look at this, the, 
a classic developing company, country demographic pyramid looks just like a pyramid or, or a, a, a conifer, a pine tree, something like that, very large base, very small top. The older the population gets, the wider this, this rough cone gets at the top. And Japan is currently, I think, among the oldest nations ever we ever experienced in history. This, and you can see two, the comparison of the year 2000, the United States and Japan, and the year 2050, where demographers project uh, the, uh, the, these two nations to be in 2050, you'll note that uh, Japan has this very unusual shape. With a, it's very top-heavy, has a great number of old people, very few young people. Fact of the matter is Japan's working-age population began to decline about 1995, so roughly 20 years ago. Japan's working-age population actually peaked and is starting to decline. You'll notice that over this 50-year period, while the United States uh, grows by about, a, uh, by about a third from 300 million to 400 million people, Japan actually contracts by roughly 20 million people over the scale. So, so while the gener it's generally true that Asia is fast growing uh, because of its youth and demographic dividend that's paying off, uh, there are places in Asia, Northeast Asia, particularly South Korea and Japan, which uh, are contrary to that. Now here's a look at the two, the same chart, but this is the two, and same time period, but it's the two biggest economies in Asia, India and China. Uh, th this is, uh, uh, these patterns hold up as well. Now the India, the India year 2000 chart, classic developing company demography, developing country demography. That's the way it looked. Great big base, very small top. Uh, and uh, with, with China, what you're seeing is a, a separation from that more typical pattern that you see in India, uh, and then projecting it forward given relatively low birth rates in China and declining birth rates in India, what you find is, uh, is uh, the, the China 2050 chart actually has more, old, more, more older people uh, than the United States in 2050. It's an odd uh, uh, set of circumstances that has led to this. But, but you also see India by 2050 overtaking China in population and being nearly one and a half times the size of, India, of China by the year 2050. These dynamics are going to play out. They, uh, dem demography is very important. Demographers can tell us a lot uh, that's actually pretty reliable. As, as, uh, as uh, uh, social sciences go, the demographers have a huge advantage because if you want to know how many 20-year-olds 20 20 there'll be in 20 years, it's a known entity. It's, it's a, it, 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 you can solve for X pretty easily with available data. So it's one of the more reliable things, but it also, uh, what this does is points to the level of, of resource competition uh, and, uh, and uh, the, the energy, water, and, and, uh, and other kinds of security issues that might arise uh, given the, the, these uh, changing population dynamics. Now, with, with extensive growth and the, the maturing populations, one of the things that happens is that, that, the, that, that the global middle class is growing massively and importantly uh, in, in Asia. If you look at this, this is a, uh, uh, from a report back that's back a few, about five years old now, but once again, demographics are, are pretty easily projectable. The notion is the global middle class by 2030, which is just 15 years into the future, about two-thirds of people who are living in what the World Bank would characterize as the global middle class will be living in Asia, two-thirds of the world's global middle class. That's an astonishing change uh, versus what we've expected, uh, and a huge change versus, say, 20, 15 or 20 years ago, where the G7 industrial economies 
were really larger, uh, had higher output per capita, where, where there was a true separation between those seven economies uh, and the economies uh, that, that were not in the G7. That separation has basically disappeared, and it's, it's made for an uh, important change. It also explains why so many American headquartered companies are so interested in Asia. If that's where the middle class is, that's where they want to be competing for consumers. Now, has growth in Asia slowed? Well, yes, it has. But, uh, but the, the, uh, slow or fast are relative terms. And as we look at Asia, I would note that there are six very, very large population uh, nations, which uh, are all, not, not including China, which, which could also be on this list, but I'll treat China separately. These six Asian nations are all, have large populations, the smallest about 90 million people, uh, the largest, India, over, over a billion people, uh, all growing roughly twice as fast on an annual basis as the United States. So uh, Asian economic growth is something that looks uh, predictable well into the future. These are going to be very important economies. The, the, they, they will continue to grow in both population and output on a fairly steady basis. Now, there's been a lot said about China's growth. And uh, China definitely, as you'll see in this chart, uh, China is the blue line on top, uh, the world uh, economic output, its growth versus previous year, uh, GDP growth is the red line. Uh, as you see, China has grown very, uh, very much faster than the world for quite an extended period of time. And while it is slowing down now, you can see the line sort of drift off. Uh, apart from all the headlines about China's slowdown, keep in mind that 7% growth on a very large base in China is more important to the world economy than, say, 10% growth on a smaller base 10 years ago. So keep in mind, China is, uh, does appear to be slowing, but it, as the second, world's second largest economy, uh, even 7% growth is very impressive, have a, has a very positive impact. As we uh, move forward and examine uh, economic strategy in China for the United States, we also need to be aware of, sh for, for, for Asia in the United States, we also need to be aware of near-term risks. The one I would point to is, uh, is debt. Uh, since the Great Recession and the beginning of uh, free money as, as characterized by quantitative easing and other, uh, other central bank uh, uh, interventions, uh, debt levels uh, have, are, have remained high and actually increased since 2007. This is a chart. Uh, for those of you whose eyes are as bad as mine, and uh, the, in the back, the, the x-axis, the, the horizontal axis, is, shows the, the increase in, uh, in debt levels since the start of the Great Recession. So since 2007, uh, in, based on current data, what is the per percentage increase of, of debt to GDP? And then on the y-axis, it is the actual level of debt. GDP is a share of GDP, of, or rather debt is a share of GDP. Uh, you, you'll see that, uh, that China has, uh, has increased its, its debt faster since the Great Recession, but is only about as, as high as the United States and uh, South Korea and many other economies in terms of its debt overhang. This is, the key question is, what happens when money is no longer free? All right? And in the end of free money comes either when a central bank decides it will, perhaps the, uh, the, the Federal Reserve uh, Board will decide that later this year, but more importantly, there may be some increasing interest rates in the future that are basically determined by markets when there's a rollover auction for bonds and there are more sellers than buyers, there'll be pressure on interest rates. And so, so market, markets alone could cause that. 
the core question here is what's the level of financial market resilience uh, post the Great Recession and post the, uh, the end of free money. Uh, so, so finally, we've looked long-term and short-term demographics and economics. Uh, technology plays an important factor and will continue to shape, uh, reshape Asia as it's reshaping the world. Uh, it'll, it'll happen in ways that, uh, that are unpredictable. Uh, as I always point out to, uh, to my friends, uh, when they think about technology and its role in our society, the discovery of fire was very important to human beings, uh, but it had a few downsides. <laughs> okay, and uh, and so managing the, the this thing and predicting the potential course of it is very difficult. But this, as this chart shows, uh, there are today about 1.3 billion internet users uh, in Asia, uh, in the continent. So it's a remarkable uh, development. It will continue to influence uh, the way these large and, and growing middle classes uh, deal with their governments, the way their expectations are formed, the way that that, 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 that affects both economic uh, prosperity and political security. Uh, so with that as a quick overview, I'll turn to Murray and uh, we'll go from, uh, from uh, some questions he's prepared. Um, well, you were still waiting for Ernie, so uh, well, we'll, I'll, I'll um, start with some questions uh, for Scott, and then when Ernie gets here, we'll, we'll uh, pivot to ask some questions that I was going to ask him about the, uh, about the uh, Asia Economic Strategy Commission. But uh, Scott, I think everybody in this room is probably wondering how, what's going to happen, what the prognosis for the TPP is in Congress. Uh, it's, um, you know, there's, there's various clocks and there's been various things said by, uh, by presidential candidates uh, and various uh, people in Congress uh, that were earlier very positive about the TPP. What, what do you think the prognosis for the TPP is? Well, I would note that it's early days, that, uh, but, but I also would, would start that uh, over the weekend I picked up my copy of Barron's Magazine, which is published on Saturdays, and uh, found a very heartwarming headline on the cover. It says, Trump is wrong. So, <laughs> so I, I would encourage you to read Randall Forsyth's weekly column, which, which focuses on exactly that subject and this sort of what Donald Trump gets wrong about trade and what he gets wrong about uh, currencies. But uh, having said that, the, the, those, this has is, this is foisted itself upon us in the presidential debate because of the conclusion uh, in, uh, uh, of the negotiations of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, now, Couple things as perspective. First, this is a very important diplomatic achievement, and we at here at CSIS focus on on uh, things like political stability in the world. And in our very chaotic world today, to have 12 important economies representing 800 million people come to come to a conclusion of a very comprehensive, broad-based, deep economic uh, set of uh, rules and arrangements uh, based on mutual interest and mutual benefit. That's a really good thing. And uh, so uh, separating from the Washington debates, uh, which tend to be more, more narrowly focused, I wanted to start with that comment. Second, uh, I think it is in the early stage, partly because of the, uh, of the way uh, these debates play out, partly because Congress is unlikely to vote on this until the spring of next year. Now, a couple things will happen in terms of political economy. First, the initial comments and initial commentary on TPP are probably a function of, uh, I guess, what you call public choice theory. That the, the, we're, we're in a situation where there are, uh, there are uh, 
where politics always responds to intensity. And there are groups with, uh, with very uh, firm views on trade in general and the TPP in particular, which have weighed in uh, and are using the, the, the force of political intensity to, uh, to crowd the debate. Uh, that's, a, that's a natural process. Washington is accustomed to that. We have institutions that buffer, uh, buffer that. But it's a reality, and it's important. Uh, but the reason I think it's early is uh, those, those firms and industries who participate in the Asia-Pacific market, which, which many U.S. firms do, uh, given our deep integration of the world economy and the, the, the importance of this region, and the fact that TPP covers, uh, covers three of our top five trading partners uh, as, as, as members of TPP, uh, it's going to take a little while to figure out. Uh, it is, uh, as, as one commentator put it, more pages than the Bible. Uh, there's 30 chapters and lots of exhibits, and there's lots of work that has to be done. Having, uh, having worked on this just for a couple weeks now, uh, I guess 10 days since the, since the documents became publicly available, uh, there's a lot that, is, is, that takes time and effort to sort out. Uh, the, there are, there are, the overall obligations are fairly straightforward and very similar to previous U.S. free trade agreements, but the rules of origin and the annex of non-conforming measures are, are a lot more extensive than they've been in any other agreement, partly because there are 12 parties uh, gaining exceptions, making rules, uh, getting, getting accommodations through this process. So hats off to the negotiators. Uh, but it's going to take a little while for most American companies uh, who are engaged in the region to really figure out what's in it for them in, in TPP uh, and, uh, and how this will affect, given their own business model, how this will affect their operations going forward. So the, 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 debate, the real debate is going to play out over time. The second comment I'd make about political economy is that, uh, that, that fall is really different than spring in a presidential cycle. At the moment, uh, the, there's a, the people are contesting for their party's nomination, and those dynamics are often different than once a candidate is selected. Uh, now, uh, so how does this go forward? Well, uh, at the moment, uh, neither, neither party has selected their candidate, so people are taking positions that make the most sense within, their, within the audience they are seeking to attract among primary voters. Uh, but by spring, uh, actually by the by St. Patrick's Day, which is uh, March 17th, over half of U.S. primary voters will have cast a ballot. So things, well, well, the New Hampshire primary, or the, the Iowa caucuses aren't till February 1st. Things happen really fast this year in our election cycle. And within six weeks of that starting Iowa caucus event, half of American voters will have cast ballots or attended caucuses in primary states. So a, so a lot of ballots will be cast. Nominees will become clear. It's, it's not clear there will be a nominee in the Republican Party at that time. You can read articles today talking about the first brokered convention since 1948. Uh, who knows? We'll, we'll find out. <laughs> okay. but, but our politics will look a lot different. For me, uh, and so I would, I would encourage uh, all those who are trying to determine what's in the TPP is, first, read it carefully. Second, uh, 
wait for companies, give companies the space they need to think through what's in the, their interest and, and how this affects their own business models, because it will differ from company to company. But believe me, companies are going to figure that out. They're going to have contact with their members of Congress, uh, their, their House members and senators, and that's going to begin to, to change the debate. It'll happen subtly. It'll happen out of the headlines. Uh, but but it, the debate itself will mature by the time Congress considers an implementing bill. Uh, as a final comment, there, there was a parallel to this uh, in, uh, in the, the last year of President Clinton's administration in the year 2000. The United States considered and, and the Congress passed permanent normal trade relations with China. This was a deeply controversial issue, particularly the summer of 1999. It led to uh, chaos and street riots in the city of Seattle during the Seattle WTO ministerial, which was, November, believe it or not, in November of 1999. Yet by the spring of, of 2000, thanks to uh, presidential campaign resolving a lot of issues between uh, George W. Bush and Al Gore, but also very thorough, uh, uh, detailed, effective work by the Clinton administration's legislative uh, affairs uh, professionals. Uh, the Congress uh, passed, the House passed a bill with broad bipartisan support. I believe over 70 Democrats uh, voted for China PNTR. The Senate then took up and passed a bill identical to the House bill uh, without amendment with no fast-track protections. Okay, so these kinds of things can happen. They'll work themselves out. So. I'm, I'm very pleased TPP concluded. I think the schedule uh, which, which leads to consideration in the spring of 2000 uh, is one that bodes for uh, some, some, a fairly extensive campaign and very thorough work by the, uh, by the firms that are most affected, but yet those firms have so far been absent from the debate. Scott, uh, I just got a note that Ernie is still delayed behind us, security card and down the street. Uh, so, uh, welcome to Washington, I guess. Uh, but because of that, maybe we should uh, switch the conversation, talk a little bit about the Asia Economic Strategy Commission. Uh, the, Asia, uh, the CSIS Asia Economic Strategy Commission is something that uh, our fellow panelist, who you see here, Ernie Bauer, who's the uh, chair of the Southeast Asia, uh, uh, Southeast Asia program, and uh, Matt Goodman, who is this chair of the is the Simon chair here in in, uh, in political economy, and uh, and Scott have uh, devised and are are working on to try to come up with some ideas for the presidential candidates for the middle of next year once we do have two candidates. So uh, with that, uh, Scott, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about what the uh, what the uh, commission is going to be working on? Thanks. Thanks, Murray. Uh, I'll, I'll describe our activities in general. Uh, basically, the, the idea here was to, to step back, given that we are headed toward a change in administration in the United States, and given the sorting that has taken place uh, between the United States and uh, our, our Asia commercial partners since the Great Recession, uh, we thought it was time to take a, a more comprehensive look at what, the, what a new administration's priorities might be for Asia economic policy, what those priorities might be, and what, what would be the plan going forward. So with that, we, we uh, built a commission of, of experts and, uh, and uh, uh, longtime Asia hands uh, to take a look at this matter. The coalition, or the, the excuse me, the commission is, is chaired by uh, Ambassador Charlene Barshevsky, former U.S. Trade Representative, 
Governor John Huntsman, he was Governor of Utah, but he was also a Deputy U.S. Trade Representative, Ambassador to Singapore, Ambassador to China, uh, long familiar with the region, uh, and Evan Greenberg, who is the Chairman and CEO of the ACE Group of Insurance Companies. Uh, so uh, with th those three building out with about another dozen commissioners, uh, of many of whose, whose names will be readily uh, recognizable, uh, and in typical CSIS, fa CSIS fashion, it is, it is nonpartisan or bipartisan, nonpartisan, and fact-based in our approach. But this commission is now uh, engaging in a depth research and we will produce, our goal is to produce a report uh, by about July, which would be presented to both of the presidential candidates at or about the time of their national convention. Uh, at the same time, we would engage uh, the key committees in Congress and uh, essentially make a forward-looking statement about where to go. Uh, at the moment, we're in the midst of the research, so there's not a lot to report at this moment. We, ha we had the first meeting of commissioners in September. Our second meeting is in December. Uh, I will tell you how the, the research is being organized. Uh, we're starting with a landscape assessment and then uh, an articulation of what we see as American interests in Asia. Uh, the, the second, the third thing we would consider is what are the, the kinds of, of, uh, of goals that we would set for U.S. economic policy in Asia. Uh, think of this as if you were, if prepare a little three by five card to go in the shirt pocket uh, that had the two or three things that were most important uh, uh, in terms of goals for the U.S. and Asia, that every, every econ officer and every ambassador could pull that out and check on it just once in a while. Uh, what would that list be? Uh, and, and fourth, the kinds, of, the kinds of capacities we would have to implement this, this program. Uh, fifth, we would look at the, uh, the, 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 the way this, this policy would lay out, how we would work with allies and partners, how we would implement these, uh, these tools, and, uh, and most importantly, how would we in, would engage the American people uh, and our allies uh, on, the, on this policy, get not only their advice about it, but get, get a commitment to this being U.S. policy. And finally, look at ways, in, the institutional arrangements, whether we are properly organized. Uh, there's a, there are a number of very interesting issues that come up. Uh, we're obviously, we're, we have no interest in, in a little study on reorganizing government because we've read those before and we've seen them uh, immediately shuffled into the trash can. But there are some very interesting questions. We've considered Asia, for instance, to be uh, all the attendees of the, uh, of the East Asia Summit, uh, which, which covers the, the field pretty broadly. Uh, interestingly, the United States government, other than the assistant secretary level of the State Department, is not really organized to treat Asia as Asia. Uh, and uh, so the, the question is, what would we do? How would we achieve better coordination, better deployment of resources? So with that, there are a number of important issues. Uh, Ernie and Matt and I will lead the CSIS research effort, but we'll be engaging with commissioners, engaging with stakeholders in the public uh, over the course of the next uh, uh, six to nine months. And uh, we'll look forward to a report that's actually uh, sensible and usable uh, by uh, whoever the incoming administration is uh, after the 19 of uh, the 2016 elections. Uh, I'm Scott. I'm going to uh, I'm going to ask you one more question, and I'll, then I'll open it up to the floor. So the the, the TPP includes uh, 12 countries: U.S., Japan, etc., as you've outlined. Uh, and then there's the uh, the other uh, the other trade 
uh, architecture that's out there, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which includes uh, the ASEAN 10 countries and China, Japan, um, Australia, Korea, New Zealand, and India. Um, I think I got 18 there. Um, well done. Uh, if I didn't, uh, sorry about that. Um, uh, but c could you talk a little bit, how do you view the, the, R the RCEP? Is it, is it complementary? Is it competitive? Uh, or can, can U.S. companies benefit from both? Is there a way to eventually maybe hook these two, two different architectures together down the road? Thanks. Sure. Thanks, Murray. An interesting question. Uh, first of all, uh, let, me think, let me say what I think RCEP is. Uh, and I say, I'm going to say what I think it is because it's not really clear. <laughs> okay. there, there, there have been initial announcements of RCEP and its goals and its members, but very little uh, in, in, the, in the way of, of, of content that's been available to the public. So uh, what, a, RCEP is an important architecture in that it consolidates a set of existing arrangements. If you look at the parties of RCEP, they are the 10 ASEAN nations plus the six economies which currently have a free trade agreement with ASEAN. Uh, so it's Australia, New Zealand, China, uh, uh, India, um, Japan, and South Korea. Each of them currently has a, a, uh, a free trade agreement. Those agreements are, as, as happens with free trade agreement negotiations, uh, not all the same. They're a little different. They're, they're different uh, sets of obligations. They're, they're different sets of, of uh, phase-in schedules. They're different uh, non-conforming measures. So the first and, and most, most important thing that RCEP, I think, is trying to do is to consolidate uh, those those different arrangements into a single agreement. Uh, now that alone would would definitely help commerce among those 16 parties because you'd be operating from a single set of rules. So everyone has the same. You know, I mean, it gets down to uh, this. This really tell, tells you tells you how mind-numbingly boring trade can be. But uh, often these these arrangements will not have the same tariff lines refer to the same products, or the cla classifications are sometimes different. So there, there's a level of harmonization uh, in in the both the products that the products that are covered and the. Uh, uh, the, the customs procedures that apply and a number of the operational aspects of, uh, of trade uh, that, will, that will, I think, greatly help uh, commerce in the region. So it ought to, this ought to be a very worthwhile undertaking. There is a goal uh, for RCEP to be deeper and more comprehensive. So more than just a consolidating arrangement uh, of, these, of these existing free trade arrangements, but actually a deeper, more comprehensive, broader coverage uh, uh, agreement. Uh, as a free trader, I think that's a good thing. I hope they succeed. Uh, we'll see. Now, what happens with how does TPP and how did TPP and RCEP fit together? Well, they primarily fit because there are five members of, seven members of TPP, which are already members of RCEP. Uh, and it, those economies, uh, my starting point would be it would be in their interest to have relatively harmonious uh, rules, procedures, and, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and tariff costs uh, in both those arrangements. So if, if I were one of the, if the United, the United States is not one of those seven economies, but say in New Zealand or Australia, which is party to both, would want very similar 
obligations and very similar procedures to happen in both agreements. So I think there's pressure, uh, there would be pressure at least from those seven members who are party to both agreements uh, for, for these agreements to be interoperable in some important way. Uh, what happens next in, uh, in Asia with, with regard to trade agreements uh, will be a fascinating question. It's going to play out over time. Uh, the first thing that has to happen is two things have to happen. One, RCEP needs to advance to an actual conclusion, uh, and you can put in your own time frame on that one. Uh, the TPP has to advance to ratification among the existing 12 parties. At that point, I think everybody looks around and says, what do we do next? Uh, there are certainly some economies which have ex uh, expressed an interest in joining the TPP. We'll see how that holds up. It'll look differently in 2017 or whenever the existing partners decide to consider that question. Uh, but uh, so I think there's a lot of this to be played out. Uh, but I'm generally hopeful, given the makeup of both TPP and RCEP, that those agreements become somewhat complementary and interoperative, at least in the near term. Thanks, Scott. Uh, this is the elusive Ernie Bauer, who is the chair of the Southeast Asia program here at CSIS. Uh, I'm going to just brief him very quickly on what we've talked about so he doesn't, uh, you know, have to, you don't have to listen to him repeating what Scott just said. But uh, in a nutshell, Ernie, uh, uh, Scott uh, summarized some of the key, as, uh, give a bit br brief overview of Asia, uh, talked a bit about the prognosis for TPP in Congress, uh, talked um, uh, talked then about, and we were just talking now about uh, the 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 um, it, whether the RCEP and TPP are complementary, competitive, or what, and so that's where we're at. And we're going to turn it over now to questions from the floor. Uh, so we'll we'll continue with that plan. Uh, so please, if you do have a question, uh, raise your hand. Uh, wait for a mic. Right? We have mics. Um, and uh, identify yourself, and if possible, ask a question, <laughs> please. Gentleman on the far, uh, yes. Sergey uh, Kostev, Financial University, Moscow, Russia. As I remember, uh, Japan, uh, and especially Japanese uh, farmers, were against uh, this agreement. They were even coming to um, Congress to lobby against this. So what concessions were made to Japanese farmers? Thanks. If any. Well, I, I think the agreement reflects the, uh, the, 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 best, the best that could be achieved or the least bad outcome um, as it stands. Uh, there, there is, uh, uh, agriculture is one of the more difficult areas politically for every economy. Every economy, whether it's Japan or the United States or maybe, maybe everybody but Singapore, has sensitivities in agriculture. I don't think, uh, I may be wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, it would be a very interesting, uh, interesting to know whether Singapore has any, any uh, sensitivities in agriculture. I seriously doubt it, but almost everybody else, everybody who has farmers does have a sensitivity. So put it that way. Uh, second, um, agriculture market opening is never as comprehensive as industrial goods in these agreements or in services. Uh, so with, the, with that as, uh, as background, it looks to me like there have, have been at least what, if I talk to farmers here and, and, and farm groups here, there's been some encouraging signs that U.S. agriculture finds some new export opportunities, uh, given our export competitiveness, that's a good thing. There is some market opening in Japan. It is by no means complete. But then again, it's not complete in the United States. I'd refer you to the sugar program. It's not complete in Canada. I'd refer you to dairy or poultry or any of the, the remaining Stalinist uh, supply management programs there. Uh, so, uh, so you know, it's one of the Mexico make the same comments. So uh, I, I do think what is is, and uh, there's a decision made on the part of the parties 
to, uh, to let the agreement uh, stand or fall uh, given the current text. Gentleman here. Doug Samuelson, Chief Scientist of Infologics, a small consulting company here in the area. Could you talk a little bit about how this strategic approach plays with the, the countries that are not included, in particular the territorial ambitions of Russia, their possible collaboration with North Korea to uh, establish trade and uh, other economic cooperation, the assertion by the Chinese of territorial sovereignty over waters that have typically been regarded as international. How do these factors play with the growing attempt to have a tree free trade zone in Asia? Um, well, first of all, I, I'll take a swing at that, and I apologize for being late. There's a, they closed off like 10 blocks of, of Washington. 16. 16? It wasn't fun uh, trying to get in. So. <laughs> Sorry to be late. Um, you know, I think in Asia, uh, economics is the foundation of security. Uh, and I think that um, uh, you asked a really good question. You know, we, we actually, uh, this is really on our minds, you know, I think as, as the president heads out to Asia, uh, to, to the Manila and KL, uh, after the Paris attacks and the attacks in other parts uh, of the world, Beirut, um, Kenya. Um, but I think, I think you're right to ask the question about how this, how this, how this affects uh, the Chinese uh, assertion uh, of their sovereignty in the Nine Dash Line area in the South China Sea. And I, and I think it, it connects in this way. Um, all of Asia wants to do more uh, economically together, including the Chinese. But the Chinese, uh, over the last several years, uh, since, since drawing the Nine Dash Line, have, have used their economic growth and leverage uh, as, a, as a lever to uh, force other countries to come to the negotiating table um, on a bilateral basis uh, with, a big, with what is a, a big country and, and the others are, are relatively small. Um, that certainly happened with the Philippines uh, and to some extent it's happened with uh, Vietnam and, and other countries. So at the same time China's trying to push sort of a sinocentric ordering of economic integration in Asia. And I have to say that uh, because of China's actions in the South China Sea, uh, most uh, all, I, I would say substantially all, I would even include uh, at, a, at a granular level uh, Cambodia and Laos in this. They, they usually get named as countries that um, are just following China, but that's actually not true if you talk to uh, leaders in those countries. They want options and they want balance. Um, so I think the, the, the relationship between these trade agreements and security in Asia is that um, there's a great interest around Southeast Asia and, and all of Asia for rule of law based uh, economic um, uh, opening. Now I think um, if, when you say rules based uh, to most of Asian, uh, Asian leaders, that sounds like um, you, in U.S.'s favor, you know, uh, put, put us at an, immediate, at an immediate disadvantage. So I think we have to be careful about that. So there, I'm threading a needle here. There, there's an interest in uh, implementation of rule of law, of law across economics and security forums, but uh, how you do that is going to be uh, very, you have to do it very carefully. And I think it's, it, this is the biggest question in, in my mind for where we take the um, the next steps, after, if, we, if we can pass TPP, 
how does the United States articulate a comprehensive vision which has to include China and India, uh, the two biggest countries in Asia, uh, in our next step for a, a trade opening in Asia? How do we, how do we articulate that sort of a vision? Um, and, and because we haven't yet, I think it leaves a lot of countries wondering, what about us? So are we part of your geostrategic and security outlook, but we aren't part of your economic plan? And I think the, the Americans are going to have to address uh, that, that issue. Uh, Mike Mercedic, PBS Online News. I had a quick technical question on the debt chart. I was rather surprised to see Singapore way out there, close to Japan. Is there some sort of red flag that most of us don't know about in terms of Singapore and debt? Good question. I don't know the answer uh, to that. Uh, it is, it, some of it has to do with the size of the economy and the size of the population. So this is debt-to-GDP ratio. Uh, and uh, given the, the relative size of the economies, I think it's possible to spike a, a, a pretty high number there. But yeah, it is, uh, it is definitely an outlier. You have, but you also have the institutions in Singapore, which are probably more uh, resilient to uh, the, what's happening. So good question. Thank you very much for your talk, very insightful. Um, I'm Brian Bumpus, from, I'm in the MA in Asian Studies program at Georgetown University. Um, I'm curious how you see AIIB playing into this, if you see integration, if you see the US uh, fighting a long political battle to join it, um, and vice versa, as I think you were just touching upon, um, if you see the US including China in TPP. Thank you. Um. Yeah, I, I think we, you know, I, I think we see the, I, I personally see the AIIB as, as potentially helpful uh, to Asia. I think that uh, we, we, the Americans actually came out with a sort of defensive uh, crouch uh, on AIIB, and I think that was unfortunate. And I think it happened because we didn't have within the administration a well-articulated, comprehensive vision of where we want to see the Asia, where Asia go in the 21st you know, but towards the end of the 21st century. I, I personally think we could probably have agree on long-term goals with, with the Chinese and everyone else. Um, and if you did that, they, it takes you into, you, you'd look at things like the AIIB a little differently, right? You would um, not resist it. You would, um, you would ask important questions about it. And if it is going to uh, uh, um, be sort of a rules-based uh, new structure that would would put money into infrastructure in Asia. That's not a bad thing for the Americans. Also, I think you, you know you, you correctly understood my comments earlier. The TPP was is and always was open to China because China is a member of APEC. Uh, I think at this point now the the TPP will have to be ratified, the core agreement, before anyone new joins. Um, I, the, obviously, the White House is going to take a shot at that. They, um, they've notified Congress uh, of their intent uh, to review the agreement and, have a, and try to have a vote on it next spring. But I think that um, what I'd like to see is American leaders talk about the, the obvious importance. If you, wanna, if you have partners in Asia, you can't expect them to embrace a vision for Asian economic integration that doesn't include the largest two countries. Uh, in their neighborhood. That, that doesn't make sense. Americans, I don't think, are asking that, and they shouldn't ask that. We should actually have a vision for a more comprehensive uh, 
relationship. So I'd like to see both China and India uh, eventually uh, in the TPP or its successor. Just to add to that briefly, uh, on AIIB, I think uh, we acknowledge the, the, the U.S. kind of mishandled that whole thing. Uh, but at, at heart, there's really a different, U.S. infrastructure plays outside the United States are built on a different set of expectations and a different set of objectives. We usually focus a lot on governance. Okay, uh, the AIB in China tends to have a little different focus. So whether those two can be blended and whether, whether there's a, a place to meet, I think there probably should be, because uh, infrastructure is simply too important to economic development in rising Asia uh, for us to ignore that. And on uh, China in TPP, I would note there's a long arc uh, of uh, uh, go, going on here, you got to look at the whole. Got to look at the whole parade to conclude what one float might, might mean. The whole parade actually started in 2011 at the APEC meetings when when Japan, uh, Canada, and Mexico asked to join the TPP, and when Japan joined, it made it real. Okay, so at that point, but but so, so the six months following that APEC meeting, this is early 2012. All the rhetoric in China, everything you read in the publications and think tanks, was all about, this is all about containment. It's somehow the U.S. was trying to contain China. Okay, if you look 18 months later, by 18 months later, the rhetoric had completely turned around 180 degrees, that it was now seen as something that was positive. Uh, and by the meetings that, the APEC meeting that China hosted in 2013, so this is just two years after containment, Okay, China was talking to the United States about the free trade area of the Asia Pacific and how it can work together. So now that all is even a little out of date versus today, two years later in 2015. Okay, but I think that long arc says there's room to operate for both the U.S. and China to operate in our mutual interest in a way that that advances uh, a, a sort of a, a high standard rules-based comprehensive architecture for commerce in the Asia Pacific. Hello, my name is Robert Thomas uh, with Young Professionals in Foreign Policy. Uh, assuming that the existing parties to the TPP talks move forward with ratifying it, what are your thoughts on the prospects for additional countries to join in in the foreseeable future? Um, I'll start with that. I, I think it, it's highly likely that Korea uh, could be in very soon. They, I think they have substantially looked at the agreement and, uh, you know, they, they, if you make a political decision and you can convince the other 12 members that you uh, are ready to sign on to text, basically, uh, without uh, asking for a, a lot of additional new changes or, or uh, derogations from the text, then <clears throat> then I think you could get quick approval. So I, I think Korea would, would happen pretty quickly, could happen pretty quickly. And then um, th there's more questions around Thailand, uh, the Philippines, um, uh, Taiwan, uh, and, and Indonesia, right? Uh, um, so I, I guess I would say Korea, Taiwan, uh, Philippines, Thailand, Indonesia would be the queue. Um, and th I'd say the last, you know, uh, Thailand, Philippines, and, and um, Indonesia would have a lot more questions uh, internally uh, than the first two did. I think that I would agree with Ernie. I would also point out that that uh, not very long he's thinking in think tank time and not t 
time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because uh, keep in mind that, that it, most of 2016 is going to be consumed with ratification processes here in Japan, in Australia, and New Zealand. Uh, there, there are some, some economies that will be able to move pretty fast, but I'm, I'm looking at ratification decisions by, by legislatures happening as the real action in 2016. What that means is an entry into force probably at the earliest, January 1st, 2017. At that point, the 12 economies, presuming everybody, everybody says, everybody's legislature says yes, and you're able to enter into force, at that point, everybody kind of looks up above the parapets and, and wonders what's going on next. And, and then you'd consider it. I would also agree with Ernie that, that mechanically, think of this as a WTO accession. When you accede to the World Trade Organization as an economy, there's a fairly straightforward process. You adopt the text, text in that case being GATT 94, that's all the rules, and you negotiate the schedules. You negotiate your tariff phase-outs, you negotiate your annex of your non-conforming measures on services or whatever it might be. But so there's a whole, there, there is a negotiation involved for any party to join. Uh, my expectation is they're not going to want to mess around with the text too much. I mean, Russia was a recent uh, acceding party to the WTO, and nobody thought about renegotiating GATT 94. You had to adopt GATT 94 and then talk about the schedules. Uh, so uh, that, that, will, that will take some time. That will play out over 2017, 2018, uh, most likely. Uh, but, but it is quite encouraging. I, Ernie noted that uh, uh, Indonesia has expressed an interest, right? And, uh, uh, for for, for uh, President Joko Wee to come to Washington, and one of the things that he said, he volunteered, was we'd like to be a part of TPP, says that there's something uniquely appealing and attractive, and what that really tells me is the negotiators got the balance right. This is an agreement that's good for the United States, it's good for Vietnam, and good for everybody in between, and now even Indonesia sees its interests there. Um, Stanley Kober, I'd like to address this question of the growing middle class. Just last Thursday, in uh, preparation for the G20 meeting, the IMF issued a document um, which welcomes China's rebalancing, for example, but um, warns if the transitions are not successfully navigated, global growth could be derailed. With global economic prospects repeatedly marked down over the last five years. There is a concrete risk of a world economy persistently mired in subpar growth. Persistently mired with unacceptably high levels of poverty and unemployment. That is a very serious warning, mm -hmm. to my mind, in anticipation of the Fed raising interest rates. How will that affect the Asian economies? Uh, great question. It already is affecting them. Uh, I think in the, if you look at this on a, on a, on a long time scale, the progress, uh, economic progress is quite impressive. On a global basis, the World Bank would tell you that in 1980, which at least for somebody with the amount of gray hair I have wasn't that long ago, uh, uh, 1980, uh, about half the world, the, 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 the number of people in the world living on $1.25 a day or less was about 50%. Today it's 10%. All right? That's really impressive. A lot of those people who were lifted uh, out of poverty were in Asia. Now that helps in terms of economic growth and political stability. It, 
has a consequence of expectations of governments. Uh, middle class people expect more of their governments. Uh, and so that's, that's important. Now, in terms of the near term, I do think that the, there, there, is a, there are clouds on the outlook, as, and you correctly uh, summarized uh, some of them. Uh, there is an important transition that has to happen in middle income economies. Uh, from export-led growth and large investments in infrastructure to the building of a services economy. Um, that's much harder to do with stimulus programs. I mean, if you think about this, if you want to stimulate economic growth, as, as and a great example of this is China at, at the financial crisis, the Asian financial crisis in 1997 and 1998. Uh, China invested massively in physical infrastructure. They built airports, they built roads, they you know, built electrical power generating plants, all kinds of physical infrastructure, and made a, a big upgrade in, their in the national economic productivity. All right. And given China's state of development at the time, that made a lot of sense. It had big payoffs. It was very important. Current China, or, or any economy in China's circumstance, would have a much more difficult time paying off physical infrastructure today uh, than it did 20 years ago. All right? And that's one of the problems. Well, you have to do what China probably would, would benefit most from now, as with many of these middle-income economies in Asia, is an improvement in the services uh, structure, the sector, uh, of uh, expanding you know, uh, sort of the intermediate institutions like insurance and health care, those kinds of things. Frankly, those are harder to do top-down. They're not just about you know, allocating the funds to, to construct a dam or a, a power plant or an airport. Okay, they, they take relatively subtle market-oriented uh, discovery of solutions that work and solutions that don't work. And so that, for me, is the interesting open question. Uh, all these economies are going to have to become less, less dependent on exports, more dependent on an internal services economy. Look at the United States as an example. Trade, imports plus exports, about 30 percent of our GDP. We have this large domestic economy, and about 70 percent of people work in the services industry, or a little more. All right, so that, that's, that's what an advanced economy looks like. That's really different than what China of 1995 looked like. And making that transition probably requires more markets and less uh, 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 writing checks for airports. So it's a tough transition. Thank you. Uh, hi, I'm Gus Alzona, a um, longtime immigrant who has um, been in, this, uh, in the Washington area since 1955. My question is, is this, uh, if uh, any of you were running for Congress like I am, uh, what would, how would you sell the TPP in probably its evolved format next year to um, Asian American uh, voters uh, in 30 seconds or less? Uh, I mean, uh, right. I don't mean hey, to limit you, but uh, Gus, you know, uh, can I? Can we this get is a, the world we live in. Yes. We'd like to get a, a consulting fee for this one. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, I, th I think you you make the argument that um, Asia uh, is going to be the math is easy. The the geopolitical calculus is easy. Uh, Asia is going to be the center of growth for the 21st century. Uh, so uh, it will also be the site of uh, our most uh, uh, nuanced and, and evident uh, security uh, issues throughout the 21st century. So we have to be engaged there to protect, uh, protect ourselves at, at one level. And, and we, do, we do so by uh, making ourselves in Asia more wealthy. 
so a TPP actually is vitally important to uh, the economic future of everyone in the United States. Uh, not only that, not only now, but particularly for their children. Uh, if they, if you want to be attached to growth and innovation uh, in the 21st century, we've got to be engaged in, in making a rules-based plan for uh, economic integration with that growth engine. If you want the bumper sticker, the bumper sticker is, Asia is our best customer, and TPP improves relations with our best customer. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> this is the gentleman here. Uh, Henry Howard, U.S. Philippine Society. I would like to uh, ask a Philippine-specific question, obviously. Uh, would you comment on why the Philippines was not in the first round of TPP countries? And thank you. Sure. Uh, Henry, welcome. Glad you're up from Florida, right? Yes. Yeah, good to see you. Um, Look, I, I think it was the Philippine determination. Uh, they, uh, Aquino was driving for uh, economic and political reforms uh, when the TPP sort of, you know, uh, I think, or the TPP was already around when he was elected. He could have used the TPP as an exogenous force and, and made the argument to Filipinos, we've got to be part of this or supply chains and, and FDI flows in Asia will bend towards other countries. Um, I think he decided not to take that uh, approach based on domestic <coughs> political concerns. Um, what I find really interesting in the Philippines today is that the people arguing for joining TPP are the top Philippine CEOs, um, which is a very positive uh, development in my view. And, it, and I think it means that uh, there will be political cover for a smart leader uh, in the future, because we know Aquino is term limited and will, he won't be president uh, after, next, uh, after next, the elections next year. But I think a, a, a savvy um, uh, leader who's interested in, in extending reforms in the Philippines will embrace TPP and, uh, for, for not only economic competitiveness reasons, but also for security uh, and geostrategic reasons. Yeah, thank you for your presentation. Uh, Leo Lin from George Washington University. I would, a student of course, and um, the question raises over the issue of Japan's statement uh, on the 16th regarding the economic GDP perceived slowdown. That was a statement issued by the cabinet of Japan uh, yesterday. So I was wondering you know, whether or not this particular statement will lead to perceptions that Japan's economy is slowing down. And if it is slowing down, what do you think it will have an effect on the TPP? Thank you. Well, I don't think there's any question Japan's economy is slowing down. All right, so I start there, okay. Uh, and one of the key opportunities for accelerating growth in Japan is opening its market and increasing its uh, engagement and improving terms of trade with its key partners. That's really where TPP factors in. Uh, there, there, it does increase competition. I would point out that increasing competition is a feature, not a bug, with a trade agreement, okay? <laughs> you, 
that, that's why you do it. <laughs> it's not something that happens accidentally. Uh, but in that increasing competition, you get greater economic efficiency and faster economic growth, mostly through specialization. So that's the story. Uh, there's no question Japan's economy has slowed down. The question is what, what happens next. And I think Japan's participation and leadership in TPP is a very important element of what happens next. Thank you, uh, Makar Melikian, Embassy of Armenia. I'd like to ask your opinion about how TPP is going to uh, affect uh, TTIP, the negotiations with Europe. Thank you. Well, a fairly simple bureaucratic uh, answer, which is it frees up resources to actually focus on TTIP. Uh, I mean, USTR is an amazing organization, and those people do remarkable work. But it's 240 people, including the translators and administrative assistants and, uh, and receptionists. I mean, it's a very small, as, as U.S. agencies goes, very small organization. It's hard to have enough bandwidth to do two very broad-based negotiations. I think the fact that TPP is concluded will have an, uh, allow, allow a lot of very talented people to, instead of focusing on two things, focus on one thing. So that's probably good. Uh, second, uh, to my mind, TTIP presents an unusual challenge in terms of its negotiation because of the existing depth of the relationship and the fact that most of the economic issues, the most of the issues that you deal with between the U.S. And, and Europe are not classic trade barriers. They're not really tariffs. I mean, there are, some, there are a few high tariffs, but not many uh, after multiple GATT rounds. Um, they're not even sort of the, the, the notable behind-the-border issues, but they are in regulation and standards. Standards and regulation are very important uh, uh, when you consider them as trade barriers, but they're astonishingly difficult to pick apart and deal with and find neutral rules that, that produce productive results. Uh, so it's a very tough negotiation from that standpoint, uh, not just because of the parties involved, but because of the nature of the current relationship and the things that you'd have to streamline and, and modify in order to improve the economic relationship. So I think TTIP kind of works on its own schedule, mostly because of this degree of difficulty of, uh, of the negotiations ahead of them. Uh, but beyond simplifying USTR's life, I think it's going to take us a while. Thank you. Hi, Shohini Gupta with the um, Institute for Gulf Affairs. I want to change the topic a little bit. What do you believe is the projection for Modi's Make in India campaign, and how do you believe that's going to affect Asian economics in the future? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think, um, I think Modi's Make in India uh, program is, you know, it's, it's obviously attractive for Indians, but they, they've got to, you know, Modi has to uh, use that uh, bait. The bait is uh, that people will invest in manufacturing in India, which is so, uh, sorely needed. You know, it's, if you look at India's economy, uh, it's it, unemployment, uh, the capacity of, of people there. They need these kind of jobs and in injections of technology. Um, but the regulations, the infrastructure, the bureaucratic culture of India is something that Modi has not yet been able to move. Uh, and I think Bihar elections and, you know, uh, really put in question whether 
uh, Modi, with all of his energy and, and apparent popularity, at least outside of India, uh, and, and arguably in India. I mean, he's, he's got some momentum, but it, it doesn't seem, he doesn't seem to be able to uh, move that enormous bureaucratic ship that is the Indian uh, civil service and bureaucracy and, 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 and politics in India. Uh, so um, we'll see. I mean, I think until he does that, uh, all of the world is looking, you know, is, is sort of outside looking in at India. But I can tell you this, that boardrooms across the world uh, in the top companies, not only American companies, but um, boardrooms in Europe, Asia, everybody's looking for growth in Asia outside of China because the Chinese have sort of asked a bunch of questions that make it very tough to think about putting enormous new investment in China. Everyone's looking for growth in the big countries or, or where the, be the best growth is outside of China. And everyone runs immediately because of the demographics and the, and the calculus to India and Indonesia. And man, those two places have made it very hard to put money to work uh, in their countries, unfortunately. And I, I think that's a, a history will show it was an enormous lost opportunity for those two giant democracies. Um, but they are democracies and they're thinking about under what terms do they want people to come in and invest in their countries. So uh, at some point, this, you know, the, the benefit of investment technology jobs uh, will, I think, probably make a good policy an evident choice. Uh, we haven't seen that happen yet, unfortunately. Just uh, one comment and a cautionary tale or a cautionary note about uh, Made in India. Uh, I would note that if you embrace the logic of global value chains, you quickly realize that in import substitution industrialization is an obsolete business model as an economic policy matter. Okay? I would personally argue that import substitution, economic, import substitution industrialization has not worked since South Korea did it in the 1970s. And it hasn't worked for very good reasons, which is the, which is the changes in technology and the regional uh, uh, integration that's happened through bilateral and regional trading arrangements has made it a high cost and therefore obsolete method. It's failing in Brazil now. It's failing in South Africa. It is. Uh, it failed in Malaysia, and then Malaysia turned around. I mean, go go read about the proton. You want to you want to know about made in India? Look at the case study of the proton. Okay, in which pr Malaysia decided to build an auto industry. Uh, and in fact, uh, we're successful at producing a 1984 Fiat in about 2005. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and as, as a process, wouldn't couldn't find any buyers for the Proton. Okay, Malaysia w wised up and joined TPP. All right, and and basically repented of import substitution industrialization and joined global and regional value chains. Thailand skipped the step about the proton and today has 10 times the number of auto jobs as as Malaysia does. So this kind of stuff, it just doesn't work. So I, I understand the boldness. I also understand the the populist appeal of making it. I mean, I deal with make it in America nonsense all the time here. Okay. But the fact is it doesn't work commercially and it doesn't work for important technological reasons. Uh, and very, very same way as you're not going to give up your iPhone to go back to a pen and paper. Uh, the, these, it's not going to work again. So uh, I, I would just, uh, I, I hope the experiment doesn't last so long that a lot of Indians are worse off as a result of it.
Thank you. I'm Jinning Nguyen with Voice of Vietnamese Americans. I would like to ask uh, Mr. Bauer, since you're late, to give us a quick, uh, very short talk about beyond TPP in Southeast Asia. And if you would come in and talk about Vietnam, would you give us an assessment about where Vietnam is currently with the TPP process? Is there any challenges that they need to overcome? How can we best support them? And what would the US strategic, economic strategy would be in dealing with Vietnam? Because if Vietnam is successful with the TPP, that would bring in all other countries, and it could be a template for Indonesia and the Philippines and many others. So would you share your expertise? Thank you. Thank you for the question. Um, I think that uh, as far as ASEAN and the TPP go, there, there are some real structural problems. Uh, namely, that to be part of the TPP, you need to be a, a member of APEC. And unfortunately, in all of our wisdom, you know, at the, at the time APEC was built, uh, only seven of the ten ASEAN members are in APEC. So only seven of ten ASEAN members are eligible for TPP. But at the other, on the other hand, Hillary Clinton and and uh, and President Obama talk about ASEAN as the fulcrum or the center of our of our. Uh, plans for uh, supporting the development of economic and security architecture in Asia. <laughs> but three of the ASEAN members need not apply uh, for APEC. So that's, that's a, something we have to fix at a policy level. Uh, I personally believe that uh, you've got to either expand the uh, aperture for membership in APEC uh, or you've got to uh, expand the scope uh, of TPP membership to the East Asia Summit members which would neatly uh, fix that problem. Um, in terms of Vietnam, I think the, um, you know, the Vietnamese are going through their own political cycle, uh, or are about to enter their own political cycle right now. There will be a party congress early next year. So the, uh, the party has to decide whether it's all in for TPP or not. I, I think the soundings that I have are that, that they are all in, and they are going, the Vietnamese are going to use TPP as this exogenous force that I mentioned before to drive uh, re reforms that they know they need to make uh, in their economy to be competitive uh, for geostrategic reasons. And also in the case of Vietnam, uh, the party itself is not able politically to go after and fix and clean up the um, big state-owned enterprises where there's a lot of corruption, there's a lot of money uh, s slipping out of those uh, organizations. There's too many banks in Vietnam. And I think TPP will give uh, the Vietnamese policymakers uh, a scalpel to cut out some of the, the, the um, let's, let's call it bureaucratic fat that's, that's holding them back. Uh, and I think um, once they do that, the pressure of, of Vietnam's competitive profile, I think, will put uh, a real fire underneath countries like Thailand, um, uh, Indonesia, and the Philippines. You know, they're, they're going to have to be in. Uh, TPP eventually because uh, uh, trade flows and supply chains are going to start to bend th and, and go through uh, Vietnam uh, instead of the places that they go through right now. I think with that we've run out of time. Uh, thank you all for joining us. Thanks to Scott and to Ernie and all of you. Thank you. Thank you.